0: Throughout my 25 plus years of working in higher education, I've had the chance to build relationships with all types of creatives. Each one of these people has a story to tell that will go deeper into their mindset as a creative. Each episode, I will take you inside the mind of a creative as we weave together stories that led to overcoming doubt, tapping into motivations, and ultimately unlocking the creative psyche. Hello and welcome to The Undaunted Creative, a podcast that takes a closer look into the stories behind the success of creatives. We dive into what defines success and how every one of these creatives uses motivation from the past and present to ultimately unlock and unleash their true creative self. Today's guest is Rebecca Baruch. She's a visual artist, artistic director, curator, educator, and also has a deep connection to the Chicago music scene as a music programmer. Rebecca, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Your creativity happened at a young age and led to finding a mentor at a really young age. Can you take us down that memory lane to when you were an 11-year-old and you started journaling and ultimately shared them with a teacher who would become a mentor?
1: Yeah, I, I really, I. when people ask me about when did I start drawing, uh, the first thing I tell them is I was like drawing fairies <laughs> in my journal. I was a big journaler. I was always writing alongside creating visuals. Like, I remember about age nine, I'd love to like come home and write about my day, as like I feel like a lot of young like, girls do. And then reflecting on the day would go into imagining some drawings. And, drawing. <laughs> and um, one of my teachers, I was ecstatic about like these like fairy drawings, and I showed it to them, and they're like, "This is this is really good." Like, I was just kind of doing. I guess, bodies out of my mind, out of nowhere, and um, brought it back to my mom, and it was suggested that, like, I kind of get more art classes, and even in first grade, my homeschool teacher, a separate teacher, was like, if I could guess that Becca's going to become anything, it's going to be an artist, wow. which I don't know if that's, like, a self-fulfilling prophecy or not, but... I really feel like there were a lot of teachers in my young life that saw that in me, which also feels like an incredible privilege. I mean, how many students do have the artistic eye and streak in them? And I feel like so many kids do, but it just depends on the nurturing. So I feel like I got incredibly lucky, honestly, to be nurtured um, in that way from a young age.
0: Well, you know, it's that encouragement to create, and I... think you bring up a really great point in regards to how many students really do get that because you know they might not go to a school that embraces art if they do they might get lost because it's a bigger classroom so did you have a bigger class of students or was it a smaller group of students that you were in in the early stages
1: I went to a smaller school uh, first through eighth grade um, maybe each grade had anywhere between 12 to 25 students so yeah I mean again speaking to that like gift of being able to have the focus um not getting lost in the sea of students it was only when I went to high school when I went to public school where I really was like oh we're just we're just swimming through a sea of students and uh that was definitely a big shift but I really made a point to connect with like the art teachers there both theater and visual uh, and tried to get as involved involved as I could um but again I just I truly think My lucky star is, like, most days that I went to this school first through eighth grade. And I think it's really shaped how I think about education, too, and how every student really does have the potential. But it often comes down to the environments and the resources we even get to access
0: true definitely and unbeknownst to you at that time at such a young age you're actually building your portfolio which is really amazing to think of because I, you know I work in higher ed and sometimes we have to really push the students at junior senior level like do you have a portfolio and they're like well you know I'm working on it but you've already were developing one
1: yeah so this mentor that I ultimately went to her name was Barbara Hirschberg she was just, um, you know, a 60-something-year-old woman who loved to teach art out of her home. Um, she focused mostly on pastels. It's funny, I don't even remember, like, choosing that medium with her, but for some reason I just took to it because it feels like drawing. It is kind of like drawing with your hand, but its final quality feels more like a painting. <laughs> and I'm like, I almost, am like, damn, I can't believe she got me hooked on pastels or, like, one of the more expensive <laughs> mediums. <laughs> But um, it really was a weekly commitment since age 11 until I went off to college. And then um, sometimes when I would come home from college, I would absolutely, you know, visit Barbara and we'd like have a session. But I pretty much spent eight years staring at still lives. Um, I never need to do still life again, but I definitely learned a lot about looking and observing uh, and taking what's in front of you and translating on a paper, and I think little did I know how many of those skills like translate into other areas, even philosophically, of just like what is perception and how do you look at something, interpret it, and uh, translate it.
0: Well, you know, as we fast forward to college during your time at Skidmore College, in addition to art, you also hosted, produced, and performed stand-up comedy. Additionally, you co-produced the National College Comedy Festival. What were some of those takeaways when you were putting together that festival?
1: Oh, man, that festival is something that kind of gets handed down from advanced comedy students and participants year after year, senior to senior. I learned that was my first major producing endeavor that wasn't like a student project that had this kind of like, um, you know, safety net, that if you fail, it's okay. Like, no, this is real. We have four professionals, one of which ended up being Tignataro, the stand-up comedian, wow. and, um, and 20 college uh, talent groups, four workshops throughout the weekend. Like, the pressure was on, and I really, um, I think something I learned was that things don't go as you plan. When you produce, when you program, things are, some things out of your control. And I definitely went into that production being like, I'm going to organize everything, control everything. Like, if I can over plan, nothing can go wrong. But that's, that's not it. Things are going to happen. Even pleasant surprises are going to happen, especially in comedy. Um, but I think I learned that you got to be nimble. You have to think quick on your feet and be adaptable, which is also a lot of the same you know, tenets of performing comedy, especially improv. Um, so I wasn't completely in over my head. But I definitely learned that you just have to be flexible to things that um, you won't anticipate.
0: And, and you learned to pivot too, it sounds like. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. It was a pretty snowy year. A lot of acts like had trouble making it, you know, being flexible around that and compensating. And we're also wearing so many hats, like pivoting from being literally the MC to the organizer to the person helping like arrange where people are sleeping. So it was a lot of facets. And you have to kind of do it all with like a great attitude and be approachable because you're also the face of it. And these are connections that you're building potentially for the rest of your life.
0: Well, it it sounds like, you know, one of the reasons I think you're so cultured is because of your past experiences, uh, having that mentorship and being involved and sort of stepping to the plate at an early age. And I know we we keep going back to that, but also your travels. Rome, London, Mexico, Scotland. What did you find in each of those stops and how did that influence your art moving forward? The
1: first thing that comes to mind is that there are certain things that translate across cultures or languages. I think that's like sincerity and heart. Uh, I feel like I've talked to a few other peers or students who are like, oh, you know, I wish I could travel this much. I'd be more cultured, but um, I also feel that those same students, I'm like, well, you you, you also have something that will translate that you're not missing out on or, or haven't gained just because you haven't traveled, which is like a vision, <laughs> sincerity. That will take you where you need to go and will always translate wherever you go.
0: And empathy, too, is another thing, Ooh, too.
1: Yes, absolutely. Like, how many things do we not need language for, like laughter and and sharing a moment? And, you know, we can mime a lot of things, but... We can always understand when something, like, touches us. In my travels, meeting people who I don't share a language with or a complete culture with, I always tell when um, sincerity is there and, and like, passion.
0: You know, our first time meeting was through Uncommon Ground, and I remember it vividly because you were there at Columbia College, and you were there to pass out flyers and speak in a class, I believe, and um, I said, well, I'm an internship coordinator, and I said, I work with those students, and we started this conversation right away and this connection, and you were as i said the program um, curator at Uncommon Ground which is a fantastic music space and restaurant in Chicago and one of the things that i noticed right away is you provided so many opportunities to young performers and also to interns your your program that you put together was you know unbelievable and not only were the interns getting hands-on experience but you also exposed artists that maybe didn't get an opportunity to Perform um, in Chicago for whatever reason. You know, they hadn't been there before, you know, on a stage and, and had that opportunity. So, community is really part of being an artist, right? Would you say that passion for helping others was one of the reasons that that position was such a great fit for you?
1: Yeah. And overall, I would say that, you know, it's not like I grew up thinking I wanted to be an event producer or an event programmer. I think I've just come to understand that it's a really effective way for me to have the impact I want to have on a community. And it's a great way for me to fuel my, my main passion, which is to bring people forward, to pay it forward and to like raise other people up as I may advance. If I'm in a position of being able to expose people, to connect people, I'm going to take that as far as I can. So. When I got to Uncommon Ground, you know, the infrastructure was not all there. The previous person had left. We didn't get to communicate about what were the protocols. I had to build a lot from scratch, which was both daunting and like so thrilling because I knew that the job that I had to take on uh, had a lot of facets. I was, I was overwhelmed, and I knew that I wasn't really going to effectively get it done and be able to focus on the quality of the programming without, without an intern team. And then I also really felt excited about building out just the internship program because I, I also love to mentor. You know, If I didn't do all these artistic fields, I'd probably be a teacher. Maybe one day I will be more so. I just feel like I wasn't even that far ahead of the interns, and I'd often say that to them. I'd I'd be like, listen, there's a lot of, like, faking it till you make it. And that's definitely how I got here. And I really want to relay that to you. And not, like, you know, complete faking everything. But I wanted to convey to them a spirit. Especially, I guess, as a woman identifying person in this field. Like, I didn't feel like I had tons of mentors who told me that I can absolutely do it. Or I always had a lot of, like, self-doubt. Um the imposter syndrome yada yada and i think the fake it till you make it is my best antidote to the imposter syndrome even if they're both made up that's how i did it this is kind of silly but i literally used to play this imaginary game when i was again like nine years old with my friends and our imaginary game was that we were like 27 you know 20 something year old in a city with jobs and partners that was the whole game which now i'm like that's that's my life like just walking to work, going to work, which is, <laughs> sounds like some like, brainwashing. But it really was me pretending to be this like self-realized adult. Like, that was the coolest thing to me. Um, and so now I feel like I'm here, and I feel like I'm still pretending sometimes. <laughs>
0: but I think almost, well, you know what, you could almost look back on this and say that you're the exact opposite probably of what you thought amongst those other kids, thinking 27, gonna be going a nine to five job because you don't have that. And I think that's what, with our next topic, 2019, end of 2019, I get this email, and I'm saddened, of course, because we've had this relationship working together, you're leaving uncommon ground. And I think one of the best things that I thought was number one, You were introducing me to the person who was going to be taking over, which I think is so important in any role in any industry, is that if you are going to leave, that you have to give someone a little bit of background before just sort of saying, well, you know, it's my last, I got the two weeks and that's it. But the thing that really impressed me was not only that, but that you were going out on your own to become the visual artist that you knew you could become by putting that time in. So... Late 2019, what were you thinking in terms of you're leaving uncommon ground, and what was sort of the path you were thinking?
1: I think I realized how much I was capable of, again, the sheer quantity of what needed to get done there um, really, like, boosted my adrenaline, you know, and because I was working for another business, and I just so desperately didn't want to fail anyone or fail the vision, so I was... Ooh, working hard and doing more than I thought I could do. And I think I was getting to a point where I realized, like, I, I made this happen. I mean, with the infrastructure with the support of my managers and, and ownership, um, and I'm so grateful for that. But I really, really proved to myself what I could do. And I thought, you know, I built this internship program from scratch. I built these relationships with these artists and musicians, which is really one of the most important things to me. I can take that anywhere. And I've always been thinking about what it means to delve into my full-time career artist. Now, you know, 2020 is definitely a very different story and and throws a bit of a wrench, but um, I really felt like I could take what I had learned there and try to apply it to my own visual art career.
0: So we talk about March 2020, COVID hits, brings everything to really a screeching halt. You know, routine becomes normal for so many people in the world, right? Because we can't go anywhere, we can't do anything, we can't see anyone. I read where you use this time for reflection and being more empathetic of yourself, and I wanted to find out if you could just sort of talk a little bit more and explain some of the techniques that you used.
1: Before pandemic hit, I told myself I wanted to give myself more time to pursue my studio art practice, and that's exactly what I got. I got a lot of time, and it's not like I I didn't use it productively. You know, that was a very and, and it can still be a very distressing time to be. In pandemic and overall 2020, I think the empathy comes in being forgiving of myself. And I'm sure I know, I know a lot of artists experience this where like they felt like they should have been productive with all that time they were given. And you can't, your mental health is compromised. The world is flashing before you on a screen. Um, you're disconnected. I mean, it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. So I think the empathy came from being forgiving of myself that I couldn't seize all that free time and be the productive artist I, I wish I could have been. That said, I did did make time when I could.
0: Well, and out of this emerges the color of normal. Pastel portraits completed in three hours or less with creatives. And what I loved about how you put this together was that you were cognizant of providing this really comfortable space and incorporate it breaks and having the creatives get into their element whether that was listening to music or meditating in between breaks did you find that that also changed the creative process due to this new environment that you came up with
1: yeah so those pastel portraits you know i started somewhere mid on common ground up until the pandemic um, and i had intended to do a lot more i still think about going back and doing more and thinking of those pastel portraits as like a wider archive of creatives in Chicago. I'm a big art history geek and I know that, you know, portraits of people become history. So I kind of felt like it's a small way to like archive and make history of people I care about in Chicago. But that, yeah, that came to a screeching halt with the pandemic. I couldn't sit in person with people in my studio. And that is also why a lot of my work became, you know, pivoted to self portraiture and exploring mediums with that, with myself as the
0: yeah, and and the exhibit was at the Juliet House in Pilson, which was created by uh, Chicago Public School educators. Um, I love the fact that you used audio via a QRC code, so the attendees could actually hear the voice of the subject. Was this part of the initial project, or did it start to develop as the pandemic raged on, as sort of a testament to the very real struggle that you know some of the people that you were painting actually are going through?
1: Yeah, no, it was not at all part of the original project. So. I had um applied for a grant to D case back in January twenty twenty. And then I found out that I received the grant for this proposal of just sharing these pastel portraits in like April, so a month into pandemic, and I just like started crying because I was just so, I don't know, distressed. There was a lot going on, and then I realized like how am I even gonna materialize this original idea? Like when are we ever gonna physically gather again? It was way out of sight. But I've felt like okay they're giving me another year extension you know everyone was living in the unknown so they were like this grant is good forever like just take your time (laughs) and um and so I was like well why don't I give myself like a whole other year and just be have a hopeful projection that maybe this can come together summer 2021 at least then I'll have some light at the end of this abstract tunnel that is pandemic just try and then if it has to get delayed it gets delayed but as the concept evolved through the pandemic I really felt like You know, what even is a visual art exhibition? If people are going to step back into a physical space, I think it has to feel really, really rewarding and meaningful. You know, literally at some point, it's like our lives are on the line to step back into shared spaces. So it really has to be meaningful. I felt like these are people I loved and who I was close to and am close to. And I wanted to honor how they've been impacted and how we've all changed. I really wanted to make a physical room where people could reflect on the fact that we are all inevitably changed. And to lean into it, I think there's a lot of radical things that will come of this time that I want to encourage people not to shy away from or forget about. You know, I think a lot of us saw the world differently um, or became less complacent with what we knew about the world. So I wanted to make sure people kept that close to their heart. I, and it just so happened that the timing of summer twenty twenty one really felt like we were just starting to like crawl out of lockdown somewhat, sure. and uh, I really wanted to make sure people felt like no, this isn't a zeitgeist; like we are changed, and you can keep pursuing that direction.
0: Yeah, what I also loved about it because I worked on DK with DKS on a project, um, the Humanity is the Genre Festival, and one of the things that I put into the budget was to make sure that the students, the young people were paid, whether it was the artists, the um, the producers, the marketing coordinator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the important part for you too was, you wound up bringing two Columbia students aboard and you wound up paying them, which was awesome. You know, it was part of your budget. And that's, you know, not many people do that. Like they, I, I could tell how important that was by having that conversation with you because you knew what they could bring to the table. And I think that, just by viewing some of the videos that I've seen on like your website and um, you know across YouTube, you're engaging others, but you're involving your core team. And those two students were part of that core team.
1: Yeah, and you know I would have loved to pay them more, but I knew I just had to put up a, a price tag on it. Um, I think I I learned especially from Uncommon Ground where we were able to give a food voucher, which is stands for a lot, you know, to get meals every time you're there, but. Paying an intern or not is the difference between encouraging, you know, students of color or students of low income background or not. And I just, um, I worked for free for an artist a few years ago. Incredible experience. I'm so glad it's on my resume. I turn to him for references all the time. Like, <laughs> I milk it. But wasn't paid, and I really learned the harsh lesson of how valuable my time is but I don't, ev- not everyone has the time to learn that lesson. Like, sure. <laughs> um, So, you know, I guess having been the artist and am the artist, when I'm also in the seat of admin, I really want to respect the artist's time. So, although I couldn't pay the, these interns more, I've done everything I can to, like, set them up into a professional pathway that does pay off and gives them connections and I'm, I'm not also a mentor that just disappears after our experience is done. Like, I, I feel like it's, I build relationships, I check in. In fact, literally these interns who worked with me for Color of Normal were now all on the board of that space shaping its future. And we're talking about if it's gonna be a nonprofit or an LLC. So I really care about like professional relationships that I build.
0: And, And yeah, you can also tell because I know both of the interns personally too, and you know, not only were they there, but they felt like this was part of you know, they could see everything that had come to fruition from working with you and, and interacting with the attendees. And, you know, it takes a lot. I mean, you've got to do publicity. You've got to update your website. You've got to do social media posts. And that's a team. And that team is something that I don't think can ever be discounted. And and again, I, I, I kudos to you and, you know, D case for supporting um you with all of these endeavors, um, especially with the color of normal. But the endeavor of now the, the Juliet house is, you know, something that's going to hopefully make a difference in that community and in the Pilsen community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we're we're um it's it's a baby project right now. It's definitely in its like nascent stage and I think we're all very excited to be part of that. And I'm excited to be part of something that is forming from the beginning. I think even just the question of like, are we an LLC or a nonprofit or, you know, S Corp? Like, I love these questions. These structures determine like how we reach community. Um, and I'm so excited that the interns get to be like part of that. I tried to mimic that conversation in our internship. Not only did they, assist, God, I had such high expectations of them. Not only did they assist me with the show, they also did like preliminary research for this other kind of sidetrack I have, which is like, what would it mean to open a flexible event space one day. And so they help with that, yeah.
0: And I know you've probably got a load of things that you're gonna do in the future, um, but I wanted to point this out too, and I have not seen it, but there's also a documentary. Yes. Tell me about that documentary. That was uh, South by Southwest, correct?
1: Well, it was <laughs> slated to go to South by okay. Southwest, and then you know, Panini, so sure. um, it didn't make it there. But it actually did just have its Chicago premiere this past weekend, which was really exciting. Long overdue, but it w- it happened IRL at uh, Gene Siskel Film Center through the Midwest uh, Film Festival. And, you know, we had a panel talk. And actually on the panel talk, I learned that uh, Showtime will be picking up the documentary. really
0: cool. Yeah. Excellent. And, and <laughs> yeah. are we thinking sometime this year or next year?
1: Oh, I don't know. I have to believe within the year. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm, it's, it's a surreal thing. I participated in that documentary from like 2016 to 19. I think we filmed in 18, maybe. Wow. wow. Um Feels like so long ago. <laughs> feels like such a different version of me. Um, I'm really glad it's out in the world. You know, it's it does connect to my artwork and to my I I think overall like professional philosophy, which is like preserving and advancing. I think just. Some radical thoughts and making people rethink what they consider normal this film was focusing on sexual education and liberation like particularly informing people of like what is the clitoris and how like fallacies around that are a source of like misinformation and literally like another tool of oppression so um really proud of the film and it's very interesting how now that it's premiered um so much has rapidly changed around gender and sexual identity in the past few years. So the film has still so much incredible merit, but like also doesn't include so much.
0: That's excellent. And what is the name of the documentary?
1: Dilemma, Dilemma. of Desire.
0: Great, Dilemma of, Dilemma Desire. of Desire
1: by Maria Finitzo is the director.
0: And so, future plans, other things that you have down the pike.
1: I have been applying for event producing jobs. I feel very ready to be back in a team and I'm, I'm hesitating if I should announce what I've just finished my third interview for, honestly I feel very good about it but maybe if I don't get the job we'll cut this part out but (laughs) I, uh, I have been applying for different event producing jobs, I really wish I could say like which job this is but,
0: when it um, happens we're, we're we're all gonna yeah, be excited just, for you. Yeah. Definitely.
1: That's what's that's the main thing. A lot of my eggs are in in that basket right now. I, I will, I'll say that overall, you know, I'm I'm slowing down in a good way. Like I, I think we all learned how unnecessarily busy we were pre-pandemic, and I'm trying to be a lot more intentional about what I get involved with and where I put my energy and having like a better work life balance. So not running myself ragged. So. I don't have like a stack of things coming up. I, I move stealthily and very intentionally on what I want to do next.
0: I love yeah. that. Rebecca Baruch, I can't say enough great things about you. Um, the things that you've done for people in communities across not only the city of Chicago, but you know, you've made an impact you know, n- nationally. And um, I'm sure even internationally, too, when people see this, when people see this documentary and I can't wait to see it. Um, but you, you've just, as I said, uh, you're you're a pleasure to work with. And please keep doing more work, because I know that more creatives would probably love to be part of the color of normal.
1: Oh, man, thanks. I'm cheesing really big because I really appreciate that. And it's it really is folks like you that make my work like exciting and easy to do. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca. You've been listening to the Undaunted Creative Podcast. Undaunted Creative is a production of WCRX-FM in collaboration with the Career Center of Columbia College, Chicago. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Career. That's C-O-L-U-M-C-A-R-E-E-R. This episode was produced by Matthew Byrne. To hear more episodes of The Undaunted Creative, check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tom Joyce. Thanks for listening.